we're about to take you on a long, strange podcast. I'm your guest host, Tim Lynch, and joining me on this journey is founder and host of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project, Christian Swain, as well as his colleague at the project, Peter Ferrioli. The podcast is a recap and discussion of each act, one through six, of the documentary Long Strange Trip, the untold story of the Grateful Dead. It's an Amazon Studios film directed by Amir Bar-Lev and executive produced by Martin Scorsese. Check out IMDb for the full list of producers, which includes Justin Kreutzman, son of Grateful Dead drummer Bill Kreutzman, and a filmmaker in his own right. Over the course of six weeks, we are hosting a roundtable discussion and interviews with special guests featured in Long Strange Trip, with Grateful Dead scholars and thought leaders, and with the uneducated, those who are learning about the Grateful Dead and being exposed for the first time through the Long Strange Trip documentary. Yeah, uh, this is Peter here. Uh, thanks, Tim. I want to give you our spoiler warning every week here. This is the part of the show where I warn you to pause our podcast and head over to Amazon and watch the Amazon Studios documentary, uh, especially up through Act 1 to Act 3. Anything that up to then is on the table for discussion in our roundtable in the first part of the show here. Uh, and then in the second part of the show, Christian will be speaking one-on-one -on -one with our very special guest, Susanna Millman, and the entire four hours and all six acts of the documentary will be up for discussion then in part two. So let's see. Christian, take it away. Thanks, Peter. This week, joining us to discuss Act 3, Let's Go Get in the Band, is a very special guest, Susanna Millman who was a ubiquitous presence at Grateful Dead shows from 1995 until Jerry Garcia's death in 1995. Uh, when Jerry was asked if the dead had an official photographer, Garcia responded, I guess not, but if we did, it'd be Susanna. She's not only captured the band in action, but also at uh, personal family events and at their side project gigs. Susanna's work can be seen in Long Strange Trip, and you can head to her website, mamarazi.com, to get a copy of the second printing of Alive with the Dead or A Fly on the Wall with a Camera. Uh, it's a very nice hardcover photographic memoir of the Grateful Dead filled with band images and stories from the 80s on. It's a 256-page hardcover coffee table book in a cloth-bound slipcase. In addition to the images of the band on stage, the bulk of the book contains previously unpublished images with a fresh insider perspective on the guys off stage, the touring party, and the extended family. Thanks for being Hi. here. Hi. I'm happy, I'm happy to be here. I'm honored to be on this show. And uh, Rebecca Adams and Steve Silverman are a tough act to follow. <laughs> <laughs> well, we think that uh, you actually have a quite a different perspective uh, being the dedicated guest this week, and we quite look forward uh, to that. But along the lines of those you just mentioned, you know, we're going to bring on our undeducated this week, who is Professor Ron Purser. He is the host of a fantastic podcast, the Mindful Cranks podcast. 
He is also a professor of management at San Francisco State University, the author and co-editor of six different books, including The Handbook of Mindfulness, Culture, Context, and Social Engagement. He sits on the editorial board of the Mindfulness Journal, as well as the executive board of the Consciousness, Mindfulness, and Compassion International Association. He's a student and Buddhist practitioner since 1981, and his recent research has been exploring the challenges and issues of introducing mindfulness into secular contexts, particularly critical perspectives of mindfulness in corporate settings. Welcome, Professor Ron Purser. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure. Uh, I love your podcast, as you know. I've been following it uh, for the past year, so really, really happy to be able to uh, have a good conversation here today. Well, thanks, Ron. So, Ron, as our undeducated guest, uh, tell us something about yourself and your relationship to the dead, if any, and uh, why you're here. Well, uh, I really didn't have any relationship uh, to the dead. Uh, <laughs> until uh, recently. Until recently. Yeah, I'm actually okay, wearing Okay, I my... completely immersed him ahead of schedule. I'm sorry, guys, all right? <laughs> I'm actually wearing a tie-dyed shirt for uh, the appropriate attire today. See, it didn't take much. Yeah. And... Uh, but, but I did have some roommates when I was in college um, who were definitely fanatics, uh, and they, they kind of irritated me. So I was sort of <laughs> – they did. They did. And I just didn't understand this cultish obsession of collecting these tapes and getting a VW van and, you know, I, I just didn't get it. I think I, I was – you know, didn't they listen to any other music? I was like, you know, what is this? So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much – Caused you to stay away, huh? Yeah. Well, let's dive in right into Act 3, Let's Go Get in the Band, uh, where it's not quite clear where the fans end and the band begins. Ron, let's start with you. What's one of your top three moments from Act 3? Yeah, I think initially as it started out, I think right away what grabbed me was just, just the whole communal uh, ethos of, of uh, The Grateful mm -hmm. Dead. I mean, that just struck me really, really hard and you know it's they they basically were like a roving commune or something like that yeah and so that really struck me just the social collective nature of of this of this band and uh that was the first thing that jumped out on me uh and then another aspect was i i really didn't appreciate just how improvisational the, this band was uh i really didn't i mean i kind of knew it but it wasn't until I started watching the series that really, really kind of, you know, I really started to see, wow, these guys really were stepping out on a limb and really taking a lot of risk, a lot of courage to do that. Yeah, right on. And uh, Susanna, what struck you? Yeah. Well, I'm right there with Ron about the uh, the inclusivity and the collective nature of of. Um, of the whole thing when I first got okay um again in the late 60s I was living I was teaching social psychology in New York and I was living a very linear life and I just didn't really get it and then I wound up in South America studying shamanism with a group of San Francisco um um, hippies who uh, were, were, were were maniacal deadheads, 
Also, Working Man's Dead was a little more accessible. I have to say that too, yeah. and uh, and so I really, I really got into it, and my life became much more improvisational, and so I, I kind of really started getting it. And um, when I first started going to shows again in the late seventies, um, I was amazed because it was the first time in my life that everybody was pro something. You know, people at sports games are united, uh, rooting for their team, but there's also the people who are rooting for the other team, and you're and you're rooting against the other team. But everybody was on one page here, and so was the band, which just blew my mind. That was one of the main things, and also just being not afraid to make a mistake. I think is very impressive uh, in in um, in playing improvisationally, and they and they did sometimes make mistakes, but you know they went out on a limb, and that's where the fruit is, as they say. Flying without a net sometimes, uh, you know. That's right, without a net, exactly. And when you get far out on the limb, sometimes the limb breaks. Yeah. That's uh, right. <laughs> just to complete the metaphor. Very good. Let me throw yeah. something out there. And, and that is the fact that uh, the Godshaws just decide one day, um, I'm tired of listening to uh, the song, so let's yes, go get in the band, communal. which is the name of the, the episode. And yeah, literally, right. these are fans that just kind of go knock on the door and say, um, hey, I, I think we can uh, be an asset to your band. And there, And there you have it. <laughs> Imagine that happening with the Rolling Stones or Led Zeppelin. Yeah, or anybody. Yeah, uh, or, or, even or, or anybody, even really. Yeah, I, I, yeah, hey, look, I, I get people come up to my shows all the time and say, hey, can we sing with you? And almost all the time, everybody looks around like, oh, how do we get out of this one? And, that, know, folks, so. and that, folks, is the shameless plug for Tin Man at tinmanmusic.net <laughs> in the Bay Area. Go check out the classic rock cover band. Okay, back to the show. Okay. Well, I think it's part of the synchronous magic of, of that, that surrounds the Grateful Dead. As in, if you're meant to, if you're meant to be at a show, you're going to get into the show. Somebody will give you a miracle ticket, or something else will happen that will that will get you that you will get get you into the show, and um, you know that's like Donna Jean saying, "Yeah, let's do this thing," and there they are, and they do this thing, you know. And Bobby and Donna Jean are still musically so tight at the 70th birthday at uh, the 70th birthday celebration of Jerry's life that they had at TRI. At the sound check, you know, they were constantly playing off of each other um, for, for, for what to sing and do next and how to do it. And it was just it was just lovely to watch that relationship that had gone on, you know, for, for, for so long and what great musical friends they are. And I think Steve Parrish also described a sort of similar thing of crossing over from being a fan to joining the crew. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yes, and Steve also talked about how it was one for all and all for one, and uh, and that was very cool. That that notion of of, um, of inclusivity. So speaking of the inclusivity, the uh, the idea of the Europe '72 tour has always intrigued me. With the the girlfriends and the wives and the babies the kids and the and, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and the we're all bozos, a couple of busloads of people running around Europe um, and doing this thing. There's some fine footage there. Yes, yes, yes. And 
I will say that that is a big difference from the time they took a trip to the 90s, you know, in the 90s. I mean, I was I was on that one. And uh, it, it was in, the same with all the kids and babies and the largest dysfunctional family in the world, uh, which Barlow describes this as at one point, you know, moving its way through airports and so forth. But... Um, uh it wasn't communal it wasn't communal in quite the same way i mean like we had rented a bus to go to uh Giverny, you know because jerry was a big monet fan everybody in the band was big monet fans and it ended up that nobody from the band went <laughs> so <laughs> really yeah they're really. In paris. obviously they're playing paris it's about 40 minutes outside of paris that's right so right. and really, and, and Jerry's a big fan and still doesn't go to see and still, and still doesn't go. And, and Bill was supposed to go and he didn't go either. And it ended up being uh, Dennis and I, Ramrod and Francis and uh, David and Marushka Nelson. And just to prove the point that they're all big Monet fans, didn't Bob Weir name his daughter Monet? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Shall I Monet and she's called Monet. Uh-huh. Wow. Nice little insider there, Tim. Good one. Yeah. <laughs> um, so hey, let's uh, hey, let's go to Ron there. Ron, uh as the the undeducated, you, you brought up the communal and the improv there. Uh what was your number two from this one? Well, I still have a little bit more on the improv. <laughs> I mean, Yo, I mean it. it wasn't just the music. It was it was the whole social uh, organization that was improvisational. And I think that combined with the music, it's obvious these guys were really f good friends and they, just their listening capabilities. I mean, because I, I, like I said, I had not really listened to The Grateful Dead. And I was really starting to hear uh, basically how raw it was, but at the same time it was very blended in terms of their playing. And I really, that's something, you know, I have a lot of friends that are jazz musicians and I've been studying improvisation more as a mm -hmm. metaphor. So what I found interesting was the fact that he really wasn't coming as much out of jazz as, as he was bluegrass, Jerry Garcia. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that was new to me. I totally, totally new to me to discover that. But I I think the band and one of the things that makes the band so special and why I keep returning to it over all these decades is that it was an amalgam of all those American music styles, especially jazz and bluegrass, all the conversational styles. Um, it was a rock band, perhaps, but when they were doing it right, you the boundary between what was rock and what was jazz and what was bluegrass was completely erased to ron's point that you had to get through the barrier of his annoying roommates like listening to him on the albums like you said working man if you were at a certain time period and got those songs on the radio in that time period then good for you if you didn't most of their catalog was inaccessible and you had to go and be there and be part of the experience well there was also the fact that uh, you know I, hey i i came to it late myself and i was never impressed with uh, the dead uh, on record but uh, it didn't take me long to be impressed with them live. And it's, I don't think they were ever able to really capture that 
that same feeling uh, on record, which is a difficult thing to begin with with, with just about any band. But, uh, uh, you know, certainly nowadays it's a little bit easier with the, the advent of technology and you can take everything that you do in the studio outside. But, um, but definitely them uh, on stage is very different than, than them recorded. So the improvisational, the thing that Ron just brought up about the improvisational, not just being the music, but also being the their, the way they lived and the social scene, um, does that uh, remind you at all of, of any of your Buddhist studies? Yeah, I it, it does a, a little bit. It's a bit of a stretch, though. Um, certainly uh, the community is very central to, to Buddhist uh, institutions and uh, different Buddhist schools. The community is very, very important. But um, I don't know. I, 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 it's interesting you brought up that point about how the different genres were fusing together and merging together. And it seems like that was one of their themes is that just this idea of everything kind of just blending and merging in this kind of Taoist uh, energy. Uh, that That's kind of the spirit of what I picked away on, uh, on Act 3. The genre that can uh, be named is not the true genre. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm excited about um, the bringing up the Buddhist theme because I'm a practicing Zen Buddhist, Ron, and everybody. And um, yeah. uh, the whole living in the moment thing, you know, is how I related the, the, those those two things because the, the the whole death thing is just is just very very much in the moment, particularly in the in the early parts when uh, when there was more improvisation, more creative improvisation. But they always it was always a moment to moment thing, you know, which was I think excellent. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I was just thinking about, you know, at that time. Uh, remember the book "Be Here Now" by Ram Dass. That right. came out, yeah. That came out yeah, like course. in '71, I think. So you know that they were definitely in that time period where they were just kind of uh, exhibiting like a collective mindfulness on drugs, is the way I would put it. <laughs> well, a very particular type of drug, you know. Well, yeah. Was yeah. Pretty much the hallucinogenics uh, side of things, and and I and, and I think it is episode three where you begin to see some of the other drugs uh, filter in. Is that right? I think it's more episode four, maybe a little bit at yeah. the end of three. Yeah. You see a little bit of alcohol in relation to Pigpen in episode three and right. how that separated him from mm -hmm. the rest of the band. Yeah. 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 That was really sad. Really sad. Really sad. And that goes to my, my general feeling about this episode. So far, this has been my I'm kind of back and forth in this episode. The first half is this we're all talking about the improv, the community. It's kind of uplifting. You meet Steve Parrish, Donna Jean joins the band, uh, you and there's all this hopefulness. And then all of a sudden it turns a little sour the second half when we meet John Perry Barlow because the way he's introduced you know, I guess at the end, it, it kind of feels like, you know, I think they play Ship of Fools. They come in basically from the Morning Dew scene, okay? So the first, I, I see this as two pieces. Oh, with Wiz, right. The first right. half. Oh, that's the best. Right. That yeah. is yeah. just the best. That's a great story. So, but the Amazing first half story. ended with that for me, right? And then all of a sudden you come out of Morning Dew into Ship of Fools and we go to John Perry Barlow that comes in with this so anti-vibe. I'm like, I'm almost crying from that moment where, 
you know, he's in the sound truck and Jerry winks at him. And that's such a great story. You know, my chills are going down my back. Right. And then they cut to like John Perry Barlow goes, you know, there was just a bunch of ass, you know, a bunch of shit around the Grateful Dead and a bunch of dysfunction. And just the way on his drive on his drive out to Big Pan's grave. There's the yin yang. There's this balance in this, the life and death, the possibility of everything in the first half. And then the way he Mm -hmm. shifts it to the second half to be like, everybody started dying and pig was out like, oh, my God. Like, uh, I think Amir just really just took me on this emotional roller coaster here on this episode. Uh-huh. And, I, and I think that's part that's a big part of the story of the dead. I mean, when you're spending that much time getting high, um, some people would go too far and did die. I think Sam Cutler says it at the end. You know, he's talking to his, his mother and his mother's saying, you know, oh, my friends are starting to die. And Sam's like, I have friends dying all all the time but there's obviously for sort of different reasons <laughs> yeah it was it right i agree it was really quite an emotional roller coaster going from uh going from Wiz telling that story about about the sound truck which is again i say synchronous magic about how when the grateful dead was flowing right boy did it flow you know and he could be out of the truck and listen to listen to the song and it was all good and uh, and then going from that to Pigpen and that row of in the graveyard with the tombstones and yeah yeah, yeah. he he and Wiz yeah. says the lines and I have it written down where is it right here he goes and Jer- and he says it with this authentic earnestness he says and Jerry was playing for all of us he was playing for humankind and I was like <laughs> Ron so let's uh, let's come back to you Ron what else struck you about Act Three. I think you're starting to touch on it. I mean, it was almost like a paradox for me or maybe a conflict. But on one hand, you know, Jerry Garcia didn't really want all that uh, power to be in charge and everything. And but so there was like this tension between, you know, it's leaderless. It's it's all improvisational. uh, It's all about the social and the collective. But at the same time, it was sort of uh, kind of a sad irony in a way that. There was a lot of hero worship going on, uh, is what I was kind of getting a feeling about. So, um, on the one hand, you know, the the Grateful Dead, the whole scene was about the collective, but on the other hand, it was still like this lone tragic artist who is uh, seen as, as you said, a prophet. Yeah, and and at the and in one of the later scenes when uh, Bridget. Uh, Says says to him, you know, well, why don't you know? Why don't you just stop for a while? And he goes, you know, how many how many people I'm carrying, kind of, and you know, makes that statement. That was true too. Yeah, but or as Steve said, they did stop, but Jerry kept on going regardless. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Yeah, even yeah. in seventy six. Yeah. Yeah. Phil, uh, yeah. Phil makes the statement at some point in the series that if we ever, the Grateful Dead ever did stop, Jerry would keep going with the Garcia band as he did anyway. I think that's true. And I think that if Jerry could have played little dive bars every night with the Garcia band, maybe he'd still be here now. Who knows? Yeah. You know, it was just the bigness and the adulation, I think, that really got to him. And I think this stuff does come up in the later things, but what yeah. struck you about Act Three in particular, Susanna? Another thing that 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 struck me was uh, the show where they're all wearing clown masks and stuff. 
And I was very, yeah, I was very sad that that I that they never did anything like that in the time that I saw shows. And uh, the most Bobby put on rabbit ears once. (laughs) And you know there was much less um, clowning around, so to speak, uh, in in the time period that I actually saw them, and I appreciated seeing seeing that earlier and um um as i said well the the main thing i mean the the whiz story just really really blew my, blew my mind because you could hear him uh you know how how he just sometimes the music just pulled you in like that and uh you just you know you just had to be there it was and like he was reliving it right then as he's telling that's the story. right yes yeah, yeah. yes well, then yeah. I would defy anyone to have walked away from that morning due if you were on stage, especially next to Garcia, as he did oh, that. Yeah. Cl- you know, I def- there's no one who could have, should have, or would have walked away. <laughs> so uh, thank goodness the tape all functioned. So anything else uh, struck you in particular, Ron, about Act 3? Well, uh, I'm a blues guy, so going back to Pigpen, I, again, that's something I never knew that there was this guy called Pigpen. And when I heard him singing, I oh, was yeah. like, my God, that's a whole different sound. That doesn't sound like uh-huh. that. And, uh, yeah, Ron, so Mc- like, Ma- Ron McKernan for our other undeducated out in radio. Oh, yeah. yeah. Who died but, at you the know, age. He, who he, lost, if I'll, keep, I'll let you go, Ron, one second. But he also died at the age of 27 like so many other rockers. Yeah, and he looked a lot yeah. older for his age. Uh, to tell you the truth, and mm-hmm. the thing—the thing that really struck me was his energy. Was almost like I felt like he was like James Brown being channeled, but and you know he kind of <laughs> funk, 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 funked them up a bit. But then uh-huh. he, that Delta stuff in, a, in another cut, he, he went into a Delta thing. So he—he yeah. he was amazing. I think. Well, he was deep into the blues, and his father, if I remember correctly, was an R&B radio disc jockey. So he. Yeah. He had all of that stuff uh, in his blood, in his DNA. And then he lived sort of a blues life, drinking hard. Uh, he and Janice would uh, just live, you know, Janice Joplin drank hard and really got mm-hmm. into those blues. Yeah, he, he was and, uh, associated with Janice uh, as lovers uh, at the time. So, and, uh, you know, Bobby and Jerry didn't have to be front men that much when Pig was there. Because Pig, as as was pointed out, I think in Act Three, that if they needed somebody to get them up and dancing, it wasn't Bobby or yes. Jerry; it was Pig Pen. It was Pig Pen, absolutely. And absolutely. let's let's forward yeah. that right to today to the blues man heading dead and company, none other than John Mayer. That if anyone pays attention, the songs that they are shredding that right now are most of the songs that Pig did, in my opinion. So, yeah, he was amazing at that uh, Mountain View concert. I mean, he's Throwing he's my... playing a blues guitar. He's a blues player. I mean, he's just and he dances. He's got the vibe. I just love. <laughs> you know, I think he's got the pig vibe more than anybody. Yeah. So uh, we took Ron to the Dead and Company show a couple of weeks ago uh, and uh, got him fully, completely immersed in the entire experience. Right, Ron? Yeah, it was a cultural experience. As you, yep. And of course, John Mayer uh, was uh, pretty exciting. Now, what what do you what do you think for your first show? Well, like I said, I I I kind of regret that I didn't give them a chance earlier in my life. But uh, no, I was just blown away by the the music. I mean, especially that uh, up tempo uh, Casey Jones when they came to 
Oh, at the Towards end. the end of the concert. Yeah, that, no, that the, the energy was fantastic. Susanna? Before we move on from the, just talking about the dead and company a little bit, have you seen them? Oh, yes. yeah. Oh, yes. I, I, I have seen them. And that was uh, that was kind of what got me back into, uh, you know, the thing of I, I have to do this book uh, and share my memories because I just I just felt it. You know, I mean, I just felt it so strongly. And I love that John Mayer is coming where he's coming from. And I love how he and Bobby get off on each other. I mean, I feel like Bobby has kind of been reborn. And right. uh, and that makes me very very happy because I'm I'm very I'm very I think Bobby is a really beautiful human being, and um, I'm glad that he that he's happy again and I think he is, and um, uh, but I think Dead and Company really conveys the the whole uh, the whole spirit of of, uh, of of the of the Grateful Dead and a big love for the music and fun. Okay, everybody, they're all having fun on stage, and the drummers are having fun. And that's one of the main things I loved about the movie was the thread of how important fun is, you know, all running through it. Yeah. Is it fun? Yes. <laughs> so, uh, and I, I heartily recommend Dead and Company. Um, and... Uh, um, I wish I, I wish I was on the East Coast this weekend. What can I say? And Ron, if you listened last week, you will listen to Steve's very wise words to uh, end the entire thing. I think he said them last week about having no regrets and missing Jerry because by going, you know, the spirit is still there and keeping it alive. Yes. I thought that was very well said. Yeah. Ron, any last thoughts on uh, on Act Three or the Dead in general? No, I I just. Uh... I, I agree with uh, Susanna that uh, this was this was definitely like their their whole I guess spirit was just being in the moment and to me that that was something I really do appreciate. Susanna, any last uh, thoughts on Act Three before we move on to the more in depth conversation just with you? I I love how Amir creates the up the ups and downs and. Uh, different sides and all the and all the different and all the different feelings and show and also show is showing the passage of uh of time and circumstance um affecting people and uh like a dead show (laughs) yes indeed If every experience could be like a dead show, oh, how life would be. Uh, so, Tim, Tim, I want to thank uh, you for joining us, everyone. Tim Lynch is the host of KPFA's Dead to the World every Wednesday evening on KPFA or KPFA.org at 8 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, thanks every week for coming in and bringing it. And this week as well, I want to thank our Undeducated guest, Professor Ron Purser. You should go to mindfulcranks.com, listen to his podcast on mindfulness and other great uh, topics, as well as head to makingrefuge.net to learn more about projects that involved uh, Professor Purser and mindfulness and uh, employing it in everyday practicality in your life. So thanks, guys, for joining us. Oh, thank you. I'll see you next time. Thanks. It was. Uh... Tremendous amount of fun as the dead shows are. Spoken like a deadhead already. You only been to one. Oh wait, before you go, wait. That is true, Ron. I don't want you to go. I, this is one question we're asking. I'm asking everyone before they leave. Is Trish, what, do you, what are your next step with the Grateful Dead in your life, basically? Well, you know, I got a lot of deadhead buddies here and right here in Pacifica. So, 
I'm starting to warm up, and I'm going to head over to Terrapin Station and start going to concerts there. Yes, all right. Say hi to Phil and friends. Um, All right, so again, thanks for joining us, Ron. And uh, that was an amazing part one of our show. And before we get into part two here, we're going to warn you that uh, Christian and Susanna are going to get into the entire documentary, all six acts. And Susanna's got some great stories over her 10-year being around the Grateful Dead in all aspects. So right now, pause, go watch the entire documentary, come back and join Christian now. Hey, once again, let's let's just reiterate the second printing of Alive with the Dead or A Fly on the Wall with a Camera is now available. It won the Independent Publishers Award for Performing Arts uh, for 2017, and it's a great buy for, for $60, only $60, and can be found at mamarazi.com. Okay, let's snap into it, Susanna. So okay, book, I'm here. <laughs> you're here. Good, good. So the book was produced using Kickstarter. I believe you raised over thirty-five thousand dollars. When I, I think you were looking for about half of that. Oh, I was looking. I was looking very unrealistically for, uh, yeah, yeah, for way less, uh, less than half of that. Like I think it was fifteen thousand dollars, and. Uh, what this enabled me, what the wonderful Kickstarter donations enabled me to do was to make a really beautiful book on thick paper with, um, with a, hard, a hardback with a soft touch laminate cover and uh, in, in a uh, slipcase. Let's get to the superhero origin story first. Uh, how did you get into the dead family? Uh, prior to actually marrying one? <laughs> well, in, when I came out to San Francisco after having hung out with deadheads in South America. Soon after I was out here, um, my, a fr- my friend sent me tickets to 1229.77. And I would say that that was the night I became a deadhead. Oh, there we go. Uh, you know, going going to shows, and yes, if there's a show, I'm going to do my best to be there. Kind of kind of deadhead, and yeah. that was also the night that I met Dick Lockballer and his wife oh. Carol. Okay. And um, and from Dick, I learned a little bit about what really being a deadhead meant. Uh, you know, just the intensity of his uh, of his uh, commitment. Right. Dedication, dedication. He um, uh, a year or two after that, I visited them in Hawaii, and he would be sitting at his reel to reel all day, you know, um, making tapes for people and uh, and uh, and uh, supporting and creating the community in particular in its in its uh, ta- in its taper aspect. And it was wonderful that he got to have the job as archivist because he was perfectly suited to it and uh, they couldn't have had a better person. Um, So that was, that was one thing. Then um, uh, I met rock and Nikki Scully uh, and got to be, and got to be good friends with them uh, through various social circumstances. Now rock and Nikki lived up 
uh, upstairs in a in a house where Jerry lived downstairs, and Jerry was single at the time, so he'd come up for dinner a lot. Now that's Rob Scully, the manager at the time, right? That's right. That that's right. And um, my daughter, uh, now our daughter, me and Dennis, uh, they adopted each other. Uh, but season and uh, Sage Scully with this Rock and Nikki's daughter would play together a bunch. So I would be over at their house. Also, Nikki Zuni, another friend Zuni, and I shared a business office. We were importing clothing and artifacts from various places like Egypt, they, and Bali, me. And uh, so I got to have dinner with Jerry, you know, and and what a great guy. I mean, he was so funny and so present. He's just one of the most present people that I ever, ever met. And um, and then also through Nikki, I went to Camp Winter. I, my daughter went to Camp Winter Rainbow. Oh, with Wavy so Gravy. With wavy gravy. So those were kind of the three pillars of my getting into the world of, of the Grateful Dead. One day, Dennis uh, was introduced to me by Dick uh, because we lived in the same neighborhood. Now, of course, he Dick and, should... and Dennis had known each other for a long time. That's right. That's right. Yes. So one day, Jerry said to me, Hey, man, you and McNally ought to get together. Now, this really? was out just of, off the cuff yeah. sort of thing? Just, just off the cuff. I have no idea why he said that. You know, but this was what Dennis was already. Dennis had, was the biographer, and he was already the publicist. Yes. And uh, I had met him. We had become friends because uh, he was my neighbor, and he was wonderful helping Susan write her English papers, too. You know, she learned how to write from Dennis, and that's a very good way to learn to write. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> uh, and I think he said something similar to Dennis, too. And, you know, I mean, after all, it is Jerry Garcia, and what am I going to say to him? Oh, did Dennis say something <laughs> to you about me? No, no, I don't think so. And so one thing... One thing led to another. Dennis did put my my name on the guest list like he had promised, which was something that Rock didn't always do. Oh. And, and uh, well, yeah, I mean, think about it. I mean, you know, I was already a little older uh, than and, and hardly a babe and uh, saying, oh, well, Rock really put my name on the guest list. You know? <laughs> But anyway, Dennis did that, and uh, and we wound up getting married uh, like six to eight months after that. And uh, I asked Jerry to walk me down the aisle because my dad had died, and uh, my surrogate dad was out of the country. And I thought, well, why not our matchmaker? And he agreed to do it with the caveat that the marriages that he was involved in didn't work out that well. But... Uh, it's thirty. It's almost thirty-two years later, and where Dennis and I are still together. So, well, congratulations! Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe maybe Garcia was just uh, pretty observant, huh? He probably knew. Yep, these two they belong with each other. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so, when did yeah. you start taking pictures uh, of the dead? Okay, I started. Photography is my third life career. Uh, I was a social psychologist, and then I was an import-export of clothing and artifacts, and I started taking pictures as um, as a hobby uh, because I wanted to share my experiences of travel. 
And I started thinking, well, it would be fun to take pictures of the Grateful Dead, too, you know. And uh, and so I started bringing a camera to concerts. And, of course, in those days, it was it was pretty easy to bring a camera into a concert, um, which it is certainly not anymore and not a, uh, not a professional uh, camera uh, no no not a professional camera although i will say that some of the phones have yeah pretty really, good <laughs> really yeah 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 i mean i discovered i can take a decent uh, decent uh, picture of guys on stage with um with even the iphone 6 wow. so Wow. Yeah, but I, anyway, I started um, in the in the uh, early '80s, and then when I married Dennis in September of 1985, I, I you know I got to have really good access uh, to it and uh, could be um, in the. I photo guess that's kind pit. of a perk for marrying uh, uh, Dennis, right? Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs>
So at the wedding, Bobby is giving his toast, and um, he raises his glass, and he says, my mama told me, you better shop around. And I sure <laughs> did a lot of shopping. <laughs> Before that, yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. So, and I believe that, I believe that shot is in the book. That shot, yeah, yes, that, that shot, that shot is, uh, is in the book because it was quite a moment, you know, and the other band members are, are there and they're all cr just cracking up because, they were witness to his doing a lot of shopping. What can you say? And um, um, also in the book is uh, is a story uh, about one of the roadies. Now the roadies, you know, <laughs> as Steve said, I think it's in episode three of Clarissette. There was nothing like th that relationship yeah. with the roadies didn't exist anywhere else, and it was right. it was really true. You know, and the band didn't want to be bothered with the business that the roadies did, so it was kind of fine with them. And uh, so the roadies, uh, not the easiest bunch in the world, okay? And so I was on stage one day, okay, and uh, mainly to get a good picture of Billy Kreutzman because he, I found him the hardest to photograph because from front of house, it was just his head behind the drums, and, you know, it just wasn't a very interesting picture. And um, I see Billy Grillo beckoning to me. Billy was the drum roadie. Was um, Billy Grillo was Billy Kreutzman's drum roadie. And um, I thought, oh, God, I'm in trouble. What have I done? I'm going to hear about it at home. I better find <laughs> out about this and try and work it out. Mm -hmm. And um, what he wanted was that he had gotten uh, his dog, who was a Rottweiler named Caesar, he had gotten him headphones that matched his own headphones, and he wanted a picture of the two of them <laughs> with their headphones. So that was very sweet, and of course, I took a picture of the two of them with headphones, and uh, that's in the book, as is the very good picture I got of Kreutzmann that day. <laughs> wow. And that, yes, that, I believe that's also in the book, right? Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yes. All yes. right. Yeah. And uh, also in the book, another very funny story um, uh, was that at a Jerry show, at a Garcia band show at the Warfield, I was up to the side in what was called the Lincoln balcony, air quotes, and, uh, you know, wearing black, totally unobtrusive, and then something funny happened with the light. And I assure you, I, I had no idea this even might have had anything to do with me. Well, it turned out that Steve Parrish's uh, assistant on the stage was uh, this Hells Angel guy named Corky. And Corky saw somebody up there, so he was shining a flashlight at them, at me. And... Um, and I didn't respond to it at all. And then next time I see, and he, so he goes up to Dennis, and he goes, "Who is that? Who is that bitch up there in the booth?" And Dennis goes, "That's no bitch. That's my wife." <laughs> ba -bum. Oh man! Oh, that's hilarious. And of course, Corky and I became very good friends. And fortunately, he he's he had cancer he's not with us anymore but i mean you know after that we were just bonded forever and oh. it was big hugs all the time mm -hmm. so 
Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, they were just the most wild and crazy and wonderful group of people to be around. And I just want to add, um, I just want to add something um, about one of my inspirations about how important it was to photograph the family was Geraldine Brandelius, who did the book, The Grateful Dead Family Album. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, from her orientation to that, I, you know, it, it gave me the idea that the most interesting thing may be even more interesting than, than them on stage to convey to people is what an extensive, enormous, extended family and staff this is. And how much it actually, and the side of that is how much it took to get, you know, a show to actually happen, which culminated with this great music on stage, but there was so much that led up to that. And so I, so that was part of the fly in the wallness. I wanted to share some of that. Very cool, very cool. So here's another question for you. Is there really blotter paper in the book? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, okay. It's benign. It's benign it. at, at present. You can do what you want with it, you know. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. We'll leave that to, to, to for everybody's imagination to run loose. So, if you could choose only one photo from the book above all others, and and I know I'm asking you to pick a favorite child, but which would it be and why? Oh, uh, um. Well, it would probably be the Greek theater at sunset because I try mainly because I tried to get that shot for five years. Tell us that story. Oh, oh yeah, no. Um, the story is that the uh, Greek was one of the favorite places for the Grateful Dead to play, and um, uh, and when you were up at the top of the Greek, you saw, you saw the stage and the whole the whole city, the bridge, the bay. Uh, it was it was all there the the uh, campanile of the Berkeley campus I mean it was just a tremendous sense of place uh, so finally I knew what kind of film I had to take what kind of exposure I needed uh, that I needed to bring in a tripod and um, I, I came prepared with all of those things, and it was 8 89 the penultimate night at the Greek Theater, and I marched up to the top and was going to stand on the TV people's platform because there, were, there weren't any TV people there. And the blue coat said, well, I don't think you can stand there, and uh, I uncharacteristically pulled my laminate and said, don't you understand what all and all access means? And he goes, all right, all right. Yeah, so I, I did it and I got, and I got the picture and it came out really wonderfully. And, um, it, and so I think, I think that if I had to pick one, that would, that would be my, my favorite because contrary to it being in, in the moment and capturing the decisive moment, it took a lot of planning so. I see. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a beautiful yeah. picture. It really is. Thank I, I you. Want one more picture I'm going to ask you about, because I, I, I thought this might be your favorite, but I understand why you, you would choose the, uh, the Greek theater, uh, there at dusk. Uh, and, and, and that's, I believe you call it your favorite picture of Jerry, which is from January 26, 1993. Uh-huh. And he's singing Gloria. Yeah. Tell me about shooting that shot and why it meant so much to you. 
well, um, in part because in part because he was he was really happy. He had played with Carlos that night, and uh, and that was that was see that was part of the perk of uh, of being Dennis's wife was that I got to be in the photo pit for the encore. I, I think Ken Friedman was there too, but normally the a photographer you know could not necessarily be there for 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 the whole show. And, um, and, uh, everybody, you know, everybody who's near the front always thought that Jerry was looking at them, but I really think Jerry <laughs> was looking at me. <laughs> uh, well, he didn't know you. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, well, he always, you know, he, he, Jerry wasn't that really that comfortable with his personal image, you know, his physical image. And so he did not really like pictures of himself. But he would always give you the picture. He'd give you the smile. He'd give you whatever you wanted, you know, because he because he had that spirit of generosity in his being, and uh, and 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 that was just he was just genuinely happy singing G L O R I A Gloria. Yeah. Right. Right. Very nice. All yeah. right, so let's talk a little bit about the the full film. Um, you know, we we talked about episode three specifically with you and our undeducated Ron Purser earlier. Earlier, um, but what are the best parts of the entire film uh, of of Amir's film for you? Well, one of the, one of the great parts is is the whole Frankenstein thing. Oh, and, the motif. Yeah, yeah and uh, oh, oh, the idea, this is, I, I meant to say this before, about the whole collective thing, um, about friend, friend good. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, with the, yeah. With the blind man, the old blind man. Uh, right. Right, right, right. And it reminded me of a story that I think Dennis wrote in the book um, about how when John Shear got the idea that Gar Garcia should do a solo acoustic tour in the early at some time in the early eighties, he he got out he got on stage, uh, performed for half the stage, went off the stage, called up Shear, screaming, "Get me Khan!" You know, because he liked collaborating. He did not like playing by himself. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. So, um, uh, so I loved, I loved that that scene. The and it really reflected on how much uh, movies were a part of Jerry's life. And um, what what I really loved was that that it had the joy and sorrow of 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 it all. And I mean, what really broke my heart was the story that Bridget told at the end when she found out he was using. Mm. And because um, you were around, he said, I, yeah. yeah, yeah, and he said, I think you have to go now, and mm. that just broke my heart, and I might just start crying right now, but yeah, yeah. So, uh, and I like very much that it that it focused, but on on Jerry, but it it included included so much else too. And and I like that it that he in, in, included Dick, and that's one of my pictures that's in there of Dick lying in the vault with the tapes all over him. It's a black and white. Oh yeah. And uh, yeah. What would you add or remove if you had a chance? I would have liked MG to be in it, but she she didn't she didn't want to. Oh, Mountain Girl. Uh, yeah, Mountain Girl. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that I, I don't really know that I would remove anything. I mean, you know, because he, he had to cut so much. It was originally six hours. Yeah. Yeah. Four hours. Uh, it seemed like a lot. I remember when I was first asked to, to do this and, you know, and uh-huh. I had to dedicate four hours to sit down and watch right. this movie in, in, right. in a very short period of time. And I'm like, uh, I don't really want to do this. And like, you know, within, you know, a half hour or so, I am completely sucked in and I watch the whole That's damn right. thing. So, so it's people do not be afraid of the four hours. It actually is, uh, it moves pretty quickly. There's not a lot of fat in this film. So, so, all right. Well, let me change subjects here. Uh, I'll ask you one last question because I think okay. I, I, I understand you were at the California Historical Society this week for a special event. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, the California Historical Society is, it it, it being the 50th anniversary of the Summer of Love, has an exhibit on that, and uh, that was curated in the historical sense by uh, Dennis McNally, and uh, in the visual hanging, putting the show together by a woman named Alicia Leslie and the CHS archivist Aaron Garcia, um, no relation. Uh, but Dennis has gotten together uh, a, a fabulous uh, photography show uh, of, of the antecedents of the Summer of Love and including starting from the beats and the political scene and the cultural, the other cultural performance art scenes going on at the time. And, uh, and then of course, all the music that led up, that led up to, to the Summer of Love and the diggers and scenes from Hate Street and, and just just the joy in uh, just just the joy in the um, expansion of the culture and busting out of fifties values that was happening at 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 that time, and so that's at six seventy eight Mission Street at the California Historical Society, and it's on all summer through through September the second. You hear that, folks, 678 Mission Street in San Francisco. If you're in town, you're traveling in San Francisco, or you live here, please take a moment and go and see this. Now, this Dennis McNally guy, he keeps showing up left and right. We're going to have to get him on this show here. I, I think, think that would be coming. a great idea. <laughs> yeah, I think he's coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, um, just- yeah. Susanna, it was a pleasure talking with you today. And, well, uh, same, Christian. I uh, I can't wait to to go through the book when I get my uh, full copy, uh, and uh, look forward to uh, running into you at various dead functions in the future. We will do that. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure of being on your podcast. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here.